Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, my name is uh, the Reverend Jeffrey Chapman, and I'm joined by... By me. I'm Kevin Flynn. I'm, a, I'm an honorary assistant at St. Matthew's Church and taking part in this dialogue with Jeff. Yes. Uh, yes, this, this, that is important to mention, that this, this entire podcast as we move through is entirely sponsored through the generosity of the parish of, of St. Matthew's and the Glebe. That's how we're able to do everything uh, that we're doing. And so just it's important to be mindful of that and, and uh, even consider supporting that parish, especially as we go through these very interesting times. Good idea. Um, right? Good. So um, we're going to be continuing uh, our exploration of Richard Hooker's uh, Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. We're, we're actually going to be finishing up the preface. And um, this is something, this is the first time in, in, in a few uh Weeks where we are going to be not reading everything for some pretty good reasons, I think. Um, so first, we were supposed to go on to, to number seven, where he describes it as an, an outline of the remaining books. Uh, Kevin, was there anything that you wanted to read from this uh, section seven? Well, just, I mean, first of all, you know, he's helpful to the reader in giving an outline. But um, perhaps the only, I'll just read one uh, short paragraph, which is, in fact, two sentences, number two. Because, after all, this, the great work is called The Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. So he says, whenever our minds sift and examine laws, whether our current ones or the ones you are proposing, we must first consider the definition, varieties, and characteristics of law. If we're not clear here, we cannot be sure of anything. Therefore, I am going to begin in book one by carefully considering what law is, what different kinds of laws there are, and what force the different kinds of laws have. So that's, I mean, that's going to be the great project altogether. Um, stay tuned, folks, because we'll be getting to that. Um, but um, yeah. we thought we might take a bit of a jump over section eight, because there's a, <laughs> it's long, it's... Um, Complicated. It seems like a bit of a digression. Yeah. Um, so we thought maybe we might just summarize it a bit. Um, yeah. My totally amateur theory is that he finished the preface <laughs> very sensibly by describing an outline of the remaining books, and then something compelled him to include this very long section eight. Really, sort of. It's it's sort of a bit emotional, and not emotional, but yeah. No, I think I think I think it is. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, and maybe there's um, maybe somebody who is more versed in, you know, kind of classical styles of rhetoric or something might say, you know, there's some method to his madness here. Um, but uh, I, I think on the, the emotional point uh, is that he's, you know, he's prophesying a collapse of order. If you take these Puritan arguments to their logical conclusion... Uh, and so he, he invokes the example of Henry Barrow, who um, yeah. was uh, was a radical Congregationalist, and uh, yeah, there's a they include a footnote here. It describes mm -hmm. Henry Barrow as a separatist, executed on charges of treason in 1593. His teachings inspired a number of groups, both in England and in exile in Holland, including those who later became the Pilgrims of Massachusetts Bay mm -hmm. Colony. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's just a reminder here of that the stakes are high. <laughs> yeah. People are actually executed because of apparent sedition, which is to say um, 
proposing a kind of church government which, um, you know, in Hooker's view means that, uh, you know, the supreme powers are going to be constrained. Uh, you can't appeal to higher authorities. The, the universities, you know, Oxford and Cambridge, they're going to be abolished and, and replaced by a kind of, if you like, Bible colleges. Um, civil courts, uh, which would be disastrous. And, uh, you know, even he says even the days of the, the week will be renamed. All kinds of innovations will be taught. Um, the only, if there's a dispute, some kind of um, debate that has to be resolved, scripture will be the only tool allowed. There'll be book burnings. Um, there'll be all kinds of novelties in religion. The sacramental order will be upended. That's just, you know, part of the, the apocalyptic scenario that he is presenting. So uh, it's it certainly, he's raising the stakes or heightening the emotion. Um, right. Well, and he's not entirely wrong, right? I no, mean, if, no. You know, I mean, Mari, you know, I, uh, I am a Canadian who went to seminary in the United States, and this is part of my church history education was, was the, the early Puritans. And one of the things that, that I, I learned was that the original, that first generation that went across the Atlantic to found these new colonies, their purpose was not to start a new country. It was not to build a new nation. It was to show their f- friends and family and all the, the, the people of England that they were right. The original purpose was they went over there and they founded these colonies to prove that their ideas were going to found a more perfect society. And so they got away from uh, any kind of aristocracy or monarchy. They had no universities over there. Just think about the sort of the classic Puritan life, uh, the pilgrim life, right? Mm -hmm. No formal universities, no formal aristocracy, no sort of heavy structure of law and order. It just simply using the Bible to build these these very very humble communities that farmed and built their own structures, and there was a sense of look, we don't need all of that, all of the trappings of a of a formal society. We can simply follow what the Word of God says, and we're going to create this society. And depending on your point of view, it was you know heaven on earth, yes, or it was the complete you know uh, abandonment. Of civilization, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know. which, uh, so you know, so Hooker is saying to the more moderate Presbyterians, you know, this is—it's like he uses the image of of a mother and child, except that these extremes folks are like bastard children, <laughs> you know, they're unholy spawn. So he's he's yeah. this emotional and, and somewhat overwrought uh, description of what can happen is is a way of driving a wedge between. People who are, you know, basically in the same camp, but at different ends of uh, the spectrum of, of opinion. So uh, that said, right. And so as a result, to be honest, it's a very, very long, wordy argument, and it's not entirely compelling, right? Because it's he's just he's using a very extreme example of look at this extreme, you know, th- this is the the worst possible version of events and it's more possible than you think. And he just goes on at length about that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He's going to, he's going to cool down. Right. So we're going to, we're going to skip ahead uh, to section 13 and uh, we'll, we'll go from, we'll go from there. Okay. So I'll read the, uh, read 13. 
Therefore, since the world has recently learned all too well how dangerous such a mistake is, you must not be offended when the long-term effects of your actions are considered, and not just your intentions. Your words seem already to affirm this when you say that your pastors, doctors, elders, and deacons ought to be in this Church of England, whether the Queen or government want it or not. You seem to be moving in this direction when you rally your comrades by publishing lists of I know not how many thousands you number in your ranks. You seem to do this when you threaten that, since neither your petitions in Parliament, nor your supplications to our Convocation House, nor your written defences, nor your public arguments in favour of your cause have prevailed, it is nobody's fault but our own if drastic measures have to be taken to bring in your form of church government. That doubtful matters are to be construed charitably is a principle unwise to follow when dealing with matters of the public peace. Mm. However, even if we think of these and other similar expressions as arrow shot at random, nobody worrying about where they land, has not your passion for this kind of government created debate among yourselves about whether people and their pastors ought to separate and put this form of church government into action even without receiving the governmental approval which they have sought and not received? The more cautious among you argue against it, but those with greater zeal are all for it. If they win out, can you not guess what will happen? After concluding that setting up this Presbyterian discipline without permission is lawful, you will soon be arguing about what may be done to those superiors who refuse to be ruled by it. Even though you have refused to join in with these separatists, many of you have begun, without the permission of your lawful superiors, to begin establishing parts of your Presbyterian discipline amongst sympathetic clergy. And lest some of your leaders be forced to confess some incriminating details of your undertakings, you are even of the opinion, rather advantageous to your side, that they need not take any oaths which may result in harm to your brothers in the cause. The next step is to start saying that even oaths already taken, if they turn out to, be, to put such good men in danger, may be lawfully dispensed with, no matter what the circumstances. Mm. O oh, merciful God, who can sound the depths of those dangerous and fearful evils to which our weak and impotent nature will descend, rather than acknowledge our mistake after we have foolishly taken it upon ourselves to defend it, even in the face of all public opinion to the contrary. Hmm. Even the next step is to start saying, even oaths already taken, yeah. if they turn out to put such good men in danger, maybe lawfully dispensed. Um, this is another part of the, um, this is something perhaps seems a bit alien to us, um, People still take oaths or, or make a solemn promise when they're in a court. Um, but, mm -hmm. you know, medieval society out of which they're coming is built on oaths. If your promise doesn't hold, the whole structure falls yeah. apart. Um, and so, you know, this is, this is kind of the conclusion of his, uh, of his scenario of what's going to happen if people start following after this kind of Presbyterian discipline. Even oaths are not going to be reliable any longer, which means, you know, um, the, the order and cohesion of society is imperiled. Mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons why I like this so much is I feel like he, at his core, is an idealist mm -hmm. who, who also deeply respects 
order and structure and, and sees, it's like he sees the root system. It's like imagining a tree, this sort of beautiful stately tree hmm. and everybody admires the foliage and all these things. And he's like, yeah, the only way that this tree is standing is because of an equally large root structure underneath it. Huh, nice image. And that root structure of our society are all these laws and all these rules. Yeah, and here these people go setting up an alternative to all of this, you know, claiming to want to be part of the of the Church of England, and yet, in fact, chopping away at the roots. Yeah, or they're trying to plant this new oh, tree yeah, that better. looks even cooler than the yeah, old tree. Yes, but there's no, yeah. you're just planting this little tiny root ball in the ground. Like, dudes, like you don't understand how many centuries and millennia we have been, you know, allowing this tree to grow, and you're just gonna like, it's not that easy. You know, um, you might have an image of a better society, but the current one that we're sitting in has been built over a very, very long time. And it is unwise to start, you know, to abandon it like this. Indeed. I mean, for me, that's like a tonic. For me, that's something because I'm always sort of, sort of, oh, you know, what's the, like you look at these current COVID times, there's a part of me that's thinking, oh, this is so exciting to think about the new, the new church that will, that will arise in these, in these times. You know, and yes. he'll say, fair enough, but let's make sure to keep, you know, we're not going to be changing the canons. We're not going to be changing the... On what right? basis are you going to make decisions? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And ironically, that structure will protect us, right? Indeed. You know, and allow us to pivot. Um, yeah, and he keeps reminding us, uh, uh, where was the... Um, you know, just because you happen to have, you know lists of I know not how many thousands you number in your ranks, just because you might happen to have a lot of people on your side does not an argument win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because there's only so many people. I mean, he says somewhere else in this, in this section, you know, there's not that many people <laughs> that actually have this sort of deep wisdom. You can't well. start just handing wisdom and truth off to everybody who you know, who, who loves God or everybody who, who reads scripture that it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. You can't build society on, on the shoulders of those, of those folks. Yeah. This is a, this is a challenging word in our day when, you know, there's widespread suspicion of elites and, you know, with some reason, uh, elites haven't always served, uh, the people that they're supposed to be governing, but, you know, he's certainly of the opinion that there are people who know better. Yeah. And they have to be attended to. Or, th or there are people who have legitimate authority and it has to be obeyed. Yeah, that's very interesting. It's so funny. I mean, everybody wants elite pilots and everybody <laughs> wants elite doctors. Yeah, please. When I'm you on know, the table, I want to make sure that it's yeah. the best neurosurgeon. Yeah, it's so funny. And then and I used to, you know, I think everybody's a DIYer until you uh, discover what an actual contractor can do. And you're like, oh, okay, never mind. That's right. I, I once, uh, I lived in a house that had been previously owned by a DIYer. And I don't think there was a single right angle anywhere to be found. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, funny. Um, okay, so there's only one tiny little section here. Yes. Let's, let's go through this. So here he, he, he wraps it up here saying, Therefore, if we consider those of your party who have gone a little farther than you, and if we care about the present stake of the monarch and authority over us, about the quality and disposition of our nobles, about the orders and laws of our famous universities, about the practice of civil and common laws amongst us, 
and about the mischief into which so many men, who began just as well as you, have fallen right before our eyes. If we consider all these things, we have just cause to fear, lest, by too hastily undertaking something with such dire consequences, we might burden posterity with evils easier for us to prevent than for them to undo. Oh, that's, that's well said. Sorry, I feel like I, I, I groaned over the last bit. Yeah, the, just read that one more time, that last yeah. uh, section there. Okay, if we consider all these things, we have just cause to fear, lest by too hastily undertaking something with such dire consequences, we might burden posterity with evils easier for us to prevent than for them to undo. Yeah. A cautionary tale to any generation. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that, absolutely. Yeah. That's a funny, that's a very interesting way to look at the challenges of our present time. Indeed. If you, you can't know. prevent certain evils from happening, they will be so much more difficult yeah. to undo those evils. What are you handing on to people? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, yeah. you know, they're talking about forms of, of church government, but you might make the same question, put the same question to behaviors and commitments around the climate. What, I was thinking about climate change yeah, too. Yeah, are we going to burden posterity with evils easier for us to prevent than for them to undo? You know, I'm going to say, well, you know, I, I recycled my bottles. Didn't I do enough? <laughs> well, it's funny looking I back. I brought my like, own bags think, to, to the grocery store. Well, Didn't I do enough? And it gets it gets heavier for every generation. I, I you know we the scientific community everybody knew about this stuff going back, early, you know mid twentieth century. I think by the nineteen nineties there was a, a pretty clear consensus, and I think there was a. I remember listening to this long. Uh, I think it was a New York Times thing from last year, um, that there was a move early on to to look at climate change the same way we looked at uh, the ozone layer being mm. destroyed, mm-hmm. which which we handled as a global community so effectively. Yes. And there was there was momentum, uh, you know. It wasn't a partisan issue. It's just a scientific conundrum to be solved. And then, I think people got a glimpse of how much the oil industry would suffer. Uh, I don't know. And now, of course, it's so much more difficult to undo than yes could have been prevented in the nineties, huh? So that's so that's the end of the preface. He's oh, no, he's always got his conclusion. No, it's not. So he, it does, it actually... Oh, I love the conclusion. Yeah, yeah, yeah good, good. it's good because, uh, you know, we just had, we gave the summary of all the, you know, dire possible consequences, but we get some words of hope and reconciliation, even if they're, as you say, somewhat idealistic. Um, they are part of the, you know, the overall kind of rhetorical thrust of, of what he's on about. Yeah. So let's go. We can, I don't think this will take us too long, but I'll read the no, first. No, no, it's good. So your best and safest course of action, dear brethren, is to reconsider your previous actions and to reevaluate the cause you have taken in hand, to examine point by point and argument by argument with all the diligent precision you can muster, putting aside the gall of bitterness which has filled your minds and searching out the truth with humility. Consider that you are but men, and that it is not impossible for you to err. Impartially sift your hearts and see whether your opinions have been fed by force of argument or unchecked passion. If truth is anywhere manifest, do not smother her with flattering delusions, but acknowledge her greatness 
and think it your best victory even when she triumphs over you. Oh, would that we could all do that. I, you know, if it, truth, I, it's just so great. Consider it and think it your best victory if truth triumphs over you. Yeah. I mean, that's it. I mean, that's, that's it. I don't know whether, you know, is this a, an impossible ideal that he sets out that we might actually all conduct ourselves with such, if you like, dispassionate consideration of, of the facts and arguments and so forth and not let our personal passions overrule. Um, you know, I mean, it's a high calling. Uh, but don't you find that, like, I find that the, the academics and scholars that I admire the most are the ones where, you know, they devoted their entire career to a certain idea, whether, you know, whether in the scientific community or liberal, mm-hmm. you know, liberal arts community, mm-hmm. you devote your whole career to a certain idea, you write books on it, and then some young graduate student blows your whole yeah. thesis yeah. out of the water, yes. your entire career, right? And, and it's, it, the great mind is the one that says, you know what, they're right. Yes. No, it's, it's admirable. It's, it's hard, but... You know? Uh, well, and of course, it doesn't always happen. I, mean, no, I, I remember I was I blown away. A, a good friend of mine who's a scientist was saying he wrote a paper that was in contradiction to one of, those, one of these you know, established scholars. And they went out of their way to, um, to make sure that this article wasn't published in any major journal. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's... This is the thing, you know, you know. we get we get a we kind of attach our ego to uh, some position or yes. something like that, and it's very difficult to detach it. Although, um, he's you know he's hoping that truth is going to be the thing that we all are really desirous of, and can let go of the ego. Consider that you are but men, and that it is not impossible for you to err. <laughs> I think it, I, I don't quote him exactly, but isn't it Cromwell's appeal to the long parliament or something? You know, like, I beseech thee by the beseech ye by the bowels of Christ that consider that you may be wrong. Mm. Mm. No, that's great. I, I I've had that. That's that's been when 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 uh, on the rare occasion when I <laughs> must quote Richard Hooker to someone with deep excitement, I often will use this paragraph, that, that paragraph you just read, I, I have that, I've had that highlighted forever. Uh, and I was, and on the rare occasion when I've had to acknowledge that I've been wrong, I wish I had had this before my eyes. <laughs> As I say, I've been wrong many times, but on some cases it's, it's been hard to acknowledge, but. Uh, yeah. I know, but it's so, what an elegant way to admit you're wrong. Yeah. Um, you know? Well, and so he'll go yeah. on and say, you know, he gives some yeah. good examples. Um, it is no discredit or blemish to go back on what you once so earnestly advocated. Among all the numerous works of St. Augustine, is not the one in which he collects his oversights and condemns them the one that has gotten him the greatest love, commendation, and honor? Job demonstrates his wisdom and other virtues in many speeches, but he nowhere better displays the glory of a noble mind than in these words. What shall I answer thee? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once have I spoken, and I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. Job mm-hmm. 40, verses 4 and 5. Um, and of course, the, that first section about St. Augustine, he's referring to his confessions. Mm-hmm. Or right, re- retractions, is, I think. He's got a collection of what, Yeah. What, the confessions of Augustine? Am I wrong? What, what he's, he's referring to Augustine's book called Retractions. Oh, Retractions? Yeah. 
Well, that's weird. I thought he was referring to his confessions, like where he kind of goes on and on and on about all the horrible mistakes he made. Oh, well, there is that too. But, but yeah, in fact, um, you know, I don't know whether, in fact, uh, of all the numerous works of St. Augustine, his retractions is the best, but it's a great example of even a great thinker like Augustine recognizes, you uh, know, grows in his knowledge and understanding and so forth and can actually say, I once said this, but I was wrong. It's like you're you know, the, the academics that you've admired who've been able to say, after years of committing to a particular yeah. view, I was wrong. That's, yeah. and, and Job displays the glory of a noble mind in saying, you know, I had no business speaking on this. Mm. So, yeah, the next bit has a, another quotation from the fathers in it, so here we go. Would it not be far better for we do not delight in that these disagreements exist, to labor under the same yoke as men seeking the same eternal reward, to be joined with you in an unbreakable bond of love and friendship, to live, though many, as if we were a single soul instead of spending our few and wretched days pursuing such wearying contentions, which unless quickly put to an end, both sides will pay a heavy price. We have come to that impasse which Gregory Natsiansis sadly describes, saying, my mind leads me to fly and to convey myself to some corner out of sight where I might escape this cloudy tempest of maliciousness which has brought all sides into a deadly war among themselves and which has taken that small remnant of love and consumed it to nothing. The only godliness we glory in is to find something which we may use to judge others as ungodly. We consider one another's faults an opportunity to rebuke and not to mourn. By this we have become hateful in the eyes of the heathen and what should wound us more deeply, we cannot deny that we have deserved their hatred. Our fame and credit is lost among the better sort among us. Naturally, we should not be surprised when the rest misjudge us, even if we had done rightly. They lay the lewd on our shoulders, and are objecting against one another, they make our scorn and disgrace. We have merited this by our own infighting. These are the just deserts of men more eager to strive with one another and appropriate to men of virtuous and mild dispositions. Hmm. Wow. It's a sad testimony to, I mean, it's one of those, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, that unfortunately, um, Christians have been known to spend more time disputing among themselves to the end that as uh, Gregory Nazianzus puts it, you know, the non-believers look on us and think <laughs> they may talk a great game about love and unity, but there's nothing in their behavior that manifests it in the least. Um, yeah. And we've merited this score, and he says, by, well, Nazianzus says, we've merited this by our own infighting. That's really moving. Yeah. We can, and just that line, that just was like a dagger. We, we consider one another's faults an opportunity to rebuke and not to mourn. Yeah. You know, you wonder about our modern world and how our um, our inability and reluctance to grieve or even like, you know, it's like, it's like we've lost that skill hmm. to grieve and we just, we get angry instead. Just can't let go of it sort of thing, you know? Yeah. Why... 
Why do we spend our few and wretched days pursuing such wearying contentions? Because we know, yes. you know, the slightest passing acquaintance with scripture will, or rather with history will show us that many of the fierce arguments of the past, we were just like, like what were they on about? Um, I don't think anybody would enter into the great debates of, I don't know, what is the 5th century when people were arguing about whether Adam had a navel or not. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's perhaps not without some merit to discuss it, but to, to make it a, a point, a, a cudgel with which to beat other people is, is to uh, take things out of all proportion. Whereas he, you know, Hooker wants to say, you know, we're supposed to be joined, we're supposed to be seeking the same eternal reward. We're supposedly joined in an unbreakable bond of love and friendship, and yet we live otherwise. Yeah. But his last, mm-hmm. but he ends on a hopeful note. Uh, but our trust in the Almighty is that our contentions are now at their worst, and that the day will come. Why need we despair when our enmity will be dispelled and with ten times redoubled love we will be reconciled just as Joseph and his brothers were when they met in Egypt? Since this is our expectation and our great desire, whoever among you may satisfy this desire, and we truly hope that each of you will in some way or other, to him may the blessings of the God of peace be more than the stars in the heaven, both in this world and in the world to come. Nice. That's lovely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the it, it, are now at their worst. But you know, it's it's like your point about uh, our lost capacity, or maybe that we need a capacity to be able to mourn over our divisions and so forth. Uh, because if you can't mourn the rupture in unity, then why would you ever expend the energy to make place for the other person? Uh, so the the image of Joseph and his brothers is is so compelling because uh, you know Joseph weeps when they come uh, they don't recognize him but he knows who they are um, yes and uh, you know I think it's in his weeping that he finds the capacity to forgive them right he doesn't become enraged yeah yeah and he had plenty of, plenty they wanted to kill him <laughs> he has plenty of reason well, who would? they have plenty of reason to dislike and d- distrust and hate them. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, this is where a lot of these historical texts, like, I, you know, it's so easy to judge the people of the past, but, you know, as far as, you know, the human race goes, they have the exact same mental capacity that we have. It's the same DNA. It's the same. We're the yes. same species. Yes, absolutely. They're just as, like, like their greatest intellects are just as great as our own age and um, there's just so much to learn from these from these folks that have been through such extreme times especially as it feels like we're entering a really extreme time now I yes mean, yeah and it, 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 well, the, the debate may not have been our debate exactly although I think we're finding that there are resonances and things that are pertinent but those but the you know the DNA of which you speak, the passions that move us, that deflect us from seeking the truth or for, for hoping for redoubled love and reconciliation and peace and 
you know, that the church should once again be known by, uh, you know, that onlookers could see, you know, see how they love one another. Um, yes. That's as... <laughs> That's a perennial challenge and, and call for Christians. Mm-hmm. Well, it's what and it's what leadership looks like. You know, uh-huh. if we want to be leaders in our community, it's not. You know, it's frustrating because people will look to the passionate, loud voice. Mm-hmm. Yes, who yeah. does the outrageous thing or says something outrageous or does something outrageous, and and in fact, the the true leaders are are people that I think that. That Richard Hooker are descri- is describing, you know. Yeah, not the person who triumph over them. I mean, he, he, he's happy to make his argument, but it's at the end of the day, it's not for him. Just who wins more arguments by shouting louder or having more people lined up on their side? If it's uh, as um, there's a, a great line from uh, a person who taught me systematic theology, he said that uh, if the church were a democracy, we'd all be Arians. Just say, you know, once upon a time, you know, a particular heresy about the nature of Christ had lots of loud, enthusiastic supporters, but it wasn't just, a, it's not just a matter of who's got the louder voices. Um, so make the argument indeed, but the, the greater goal, uh, the, the, um, the view uh, that you have to have fixed on when you're making the argument is the peace and unity of the Church of God. Because that should at least temper the passion with which you make your case. You can't lose that peace and unity. Because God is a God of order and peace. Mm Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Good stuff. That's the, that's the end of the preface. Indeed. So we hope that uh, people will be prepped now for when he starts getting into... Uh, this, 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 is just the, this is just the aperitif. We're, we're going to come to start the main course imminently. Right. Even though this preface is a pretty fulsome article in the uh, New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Okay, well, that's, that's great. So... So, um, so the next, uh, yeah. the next one is um, just looking to see the book one. Book one is um, what do they call it in this new translation? Just a minute. Yeah, there it is. Uh, Divine law and human nature. Is that what that is? Yeah. Yeah. Book one: Divine law and human nature. There we are. Yeah. Great. Yeah, that's going to be good times. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So uh, we'll see you all next week. Very good. Bye-bye, all. Bye.